Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 155 for July 31st, 2008. How DNS Works. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure, Visa. Time for Security Now, episode 155. We're talking about security, protecting yourself on the internet, learning how uh, the internet works. A lot of great topics with a guy who certainly knows this subject inside and out, Mr. Steve Gibson, the guy who coined the term spyware first, first got to discover spyware, uh, has so many been made so, so many great security utilities on his website, grc.com. And of course, best known, uh, well, I don't know what best known is, Steve, but certainly well known for Spinrite, his uh, hard drive maintenance utility. But also you got well known, I think, I first became aware of you with your InfoWorld column. Yep, I think that was probably early on. Actually, it was it was fun. My, it was for the promotion of Spinrite that I approached InfoWorld and I said, hey, would you be willing to trade an ad for a column? Yeah. And they were like, uh, who are you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I somehow talked them into it. And uh, so we just did a, a trade out deal. I didn't need any other compensation, but just having a, a, you know, a chunk of space to let the world know about Spinrite was my goal. And of course, the column ended up really taking off. I wrote it for, you know, every week for eight years. I loved it. I was so sad when you quit. Well, it just, you know, I had did it for eight years and I pretty much said all I had to say. And I was getting, you know, busy with other stuff. And sure, so it was like, sure. oh, okay. and frankly, I remember too, the, the, as you probably remember, the magazine really began yeah. to change not for the better. Well, it became um, a business magazine instead of the techie ju- magazine. It was the yeah. journal of record for Silicon yes. Valley. Uh, between you and uh, Dvorak, <clears throat> those were... Those were and cringely and cringely. You had to yep. read that magazine every week, yeah. uh, and I did, and I loved it. But then it became really more like a, a business magazine, and I became much less interested in it. And of course, it faded away as a result. Uh huh. Um, what was the name of your column? It was Tech Talk. Tech Talk. That's yeah. Right. The, the I originally I re- originally named it Behind the Screens. I like uh, that. I did too. Except that it turns out that CompuServe made a trademark claim uh. to having behind the screens and i was like okay fine so they so i got a call from info they said okay steve you got to rename your column and i was like ah oh, well okay right. tech talk so yeah, that's a good you know it, it flew forward as tech talk for eight years and uh, yeah. it was a lot of fun doing it what are we going to talk about speaking of tech talk what are we going to talk about today steve well the our plans have changed a little bit from the last two weeks we've been talking about what we're going to talk about today because the essentially what is probably all of the information that we were going to embargo for two weeks until after Dan Kaminsky had officially um, released it at, at the at the plan at his during his planned for talk on August six during the Black Hat conference in Las Vegas. 
all of the information has made it out into the Internet. So it's no longer necessary to embargo it. And we're going to talk about, first of all, how DNS works to create a real good foundation for understanding how it is that it is possible to exploit it. Essentially, what it is that Kaminsky realized early this year. It isn't a bug. It wasn't a defect. Um, that is, it wasn't like coded wrong, which is why it affected Microsoft DNS and the main bind uh, issue. You know, I mean, it, it, DNS essentially, internet wide, turns out to be more readily exploitable than was believed before. DNS spoofing is not new, but this is basically a new, really more potent type of attack. So we're going to we're going to really explain. And I've never done that in all you know in our nearly three years of the podcast. We've we've never really focused on DNS. So I want to lay down a nice foundation of understanding, which is why people need to get their propeller head caps going. <laughs> and uh, and then we'll talk about because we'll understand how DNS works. We'll be able to talk about what it is that makes it vulnerable and and what the vulnerability is. Yeah, I'm surprised we've never covered how DNS works. That seems like because uh, uh, early on in the show, and I highly recommend people go back and listen. Uh, all of the episodes are available from Steve's site, grc.com, or on twit.tv. We covered really a lot of the fundamental technologies of the internet. Yeah, we. Oh, I've referred to you know name servers and DNS spoofing and man in the middle attacks, and you know we've sort of we we we've talked about it tangentially. Um, or maybe it's circumferentially, I'm not really sure, but <laughs> radially. Um, but we never really just said, okay, let's, let's nail this down. And, in, and, and interestingly, it is a not a very well understood technology. We all sort of, you know, people know, oh, well, I've got DNS servers somewhere. I'm, you know, I point at my computer at them. We've, and of course, we've talked about open DNS on several occasions when, you know, DNS issues arose. But you know, we've never really explained in detail how it works. And there are, there's, it's, in, as always, it's in the details that yes. this attack functions. Yes. So we're, we're, we're going to explain it all the way, completely. In, in every a bit of its gory detail, in just a bit, uh, but for, and also the tech news coming up, or security news coming up in just a bit. But before we do, I want to mention our sponsors, audible.com, audiblepodcast.com slash security now is the URL you need to know. That's where you can go. If you're not an Audible member, sign up for this incredible service, this audiobook service, and to get a free book just for signing up. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's so much. One of the things that's really fun about Audible is 50,000 titles, and it's growing very fast, growing in science fiction, too, especially. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the principals there is a big science fiction fanatic, and he's made it his duty, his goal uh, to build studios at Audible and start recording some of these great science fiction books. And I thought it'd be fun. One of the neat things about Audible, you can always go back and look at what you've uh, purchased and download it again, by the way. So I, I look in my library, 323 books that I've bought over the last eight years. My first, The first book I bought from Audible, I think, was 2000 or 2001. And I was looking back through my books, thinking of something I could uh, recommend today. And, and I looked at the very first Audible book I purchased. And it's still just as great today as it was then. It's the best of science fiction and fantasy. A lot of times we talk, you and I, uh, Steve, about long-form science fiction, great big novels like 
Peter F. Hamilton's Night's Dawn <laughs> trilogy, which I'm still yeah. reading, <laughs> which is wonderful. But I think sometimes people might overlook the short stories. And frankly, the short stories are where some of the most interesting, innovative, exciting ideas occur in science fiction. Um, people like Philip K. Dick, who are the masters of the short story. Um, I mean, there's Greg Bear in this one. Ben Bova, that's how I discovered him. His book, his uh, short story, The Man Who Hated Gravity. Arthur C. Clarke, Fritz Lieber. Um, some of the great masters of science fiction are in this. And you might have a hard time finding it because if you search for best of science fiction, there are many other compilations. If you, if you ha- And short stories are kind of fun too because if you only have a short drive, you're going to the store or, or uh, you know just a, a quick commute. This is a great way to get a full story in one 15, 20-minute, half-hour session. A collection of science fiction greats, the best of science fiction and fantasy, highly recommended, but you'll find a 50,000 great science fiction, nonfiction, history, business, self-help, and on and on titles. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. So what's uh, what's going on in the security news? And besides this, Dan Kaminsky story has been just dominating the headlines for three weeks now. Well, yes, it has. And, and you know, the, essentially the news there, because there's a little bit of news uh, I alluded to before, and that is that, that essentially, as is so often the case, when you know that there's a problem, you're much more likely to go and see if you can figure it out than if you don't know there's a problem. And, and when I started thinking about, okay, if I were to test for this problem for visitors who come to GRC, how would I induce their name server to generate a bunch of queries ah. so that I could see what it was doing in order to measure its randomness? And it turns out that, you know, that's one of the way that's one of the components of this attack. So what happened was over the course of the last couple of weeks, um, unfortunately, for maybe for some people who get caught by this, um, which essentially is a is going to be like a, a major phishing trap, you know, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G trap. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people in the industry began speculating and some people started guessing and posted their guesses on blogs. And other people said, no, no, it won't work because of that, but this would. And what happened was basically people figured it out, (laughs) figured it out. You know, it it ended up being figured out. And then finally, uh, one security researcher made a guess. And then somebody who had was actually in the loop, who had been told directly by Dan what the problem was, confirmed it. So Dan wasn't going to say anything till Black Hat, which is next week, right? Or the week after. Yeah, it was. It's uh, next week. And then. Our original plan was to have him on the following week and, you know, just as our guest to 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 hear it from him. Uh, but it, basically, his unfortunately, his talk has probably be, been preempted. Now, it's worth noting, though, oh, he'll that, still talk and still give it the full oh, treatment. I'm well, sure. But yes, but it's worth noting that we don't know that we've figured out we the industry have figured it out. There could still be something else. Yes. What what is known is that that something new has been found and is being exploited, and there are now exploit tools for this. Right. So anyway, so 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 there's that. But I did want to mention 
Um, two things that, and this of course is the big security news and, and blessedly there wasn't much else that went wrong in, in, in the last week since Hallelujah. we last talked. Yeah. Yeah. Except that another problem was discovered in Mozilla derived browsers. Um, there's a memory correct, a memory corruption bug, which, which was already fixed by the most recent release, but it's, it's a more serious problem than then the reason we went to in, in the case of Firefox three to version three point zero point one in the case of Firefox two to ten to uh, two point zero point zero point one six so I, I wanted to reinforce in our listeners' minds I, I I said this last week because there were other things that those were fixing but a a more serious problem came out so I just want to make sure that our listeners who are using Firefox um, had brought themselves up to up to date because there are some other things that that ended up being fixed sort of in the process that have since been found to be wrong with the the down version versions. Excellent. Okay. And uh, my only other news is I got a, a, real, a really interesting uh, uh, spinright story from uh, 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 one of our listeners, Elaine. Donaeus, D-O-N-A-I-S, um, he, he said, um, I bought Spinrite recently and talk about great timing. He said, right after I bought it, my parents called me because their computer won't boot, and since it's still under warranty, they brought it to the store's technician, where he told them that the hard drive was done, as, 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 as Elaine said. Done. <laughs> and done. Oh, it's done. It's cooked. And it, and it had to be replaced. This was a big problem as they had no backup of their photos and other important data. So I told them to bring the computer over, and I ran Spinrite. After several hours, the computer was working as new. The tech of the store was extremely surprised to know that I had fixed my parents' hard drive. The next day, and I kid you not, when I get home from work, my co-tenant informs me that his computer's power (laughs) supply died, and after replacing it, the computer won't boot. So I take out Spinrite, and after several hours, another hard drive fixed. And finally, recently, my brother had to replace no. his computer wow. because his very old computer was dying on him. And after putting his old hard drive in the new computer to transfer the data, to transfer the data, the drive is unreadable. And once more, Spinrite to the rescue. So as you can easily figure out by now, this was one of the best investments of my money ever. <laughs> Thanks, Steve, for writing such a useful and efficient software. Signed, Elaine. That's really neat. So I, that, I was. I actually nice. have a spin drive. Didn't spin right? Didn't work for me. Uh, story, as as you know. But it wasn't, you know, one thing I think we, I try to make this clear is that Spinrite is for a particular category of problems. Where there are other kinds of hard drive problems. For instance, if it's a file system problem, you know, your partition table um, got mucked up. Then Spinrite won't help. It helps with bad sectors, right? I mean, that's really well. What... It'll also help, for example, like you know, for example, many times we've we've read testimonials where people say their machine is in a an infinite reboot loop. Right. Well, it's it's probably. I mean, it's a sector level problem, but so the sector is being read incorrectly or not at all, and right. so that's causing Spinrite to keep from booting. So so you know that is. A file—it's in the file system, so it's a file system problem. But but in your case, Leo, I mean, 
it just stopped being a drive. It yeah. became a, a, a doorstop. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, we use a, a very cool device called the TriCaster for the video, the TwitLive video stream. And it allows me, it's basically a, a, a video control room in an in a XP box the size of a shuttle uh, PC. And, you know, it allows me to switch cameras to put CGs up, record video, playback video. It's really great. Um, but, you know, it's a computer and the hard drive, we're in the middle of recording and blue screen. So I tried to reboot it, and uh, and it said no uh, no operating system. So I knew immediately it's a hard drive, right? And of course, I knew immediately what to do. I pulled it out, uh, put put it because this doesn't have this, which is a little frustrating. Doesn't have optical drives. There's no room for them. So uh, I had to put it in another machine so I could boot into Spinrite. Yep. And uh, and interesting thing happened. And I was curious what your take on this was. The BIOS says, yeah, there's a drive there. It gives me the correct ID number, but the BIOS says 0.0 gig drive. Uh-uh. Yeah, that's an indication uh-uh. that the, the drive isn't even online. It's not, I yeah. mean, it's you know, it's it's responding to some commands, but but there but there's a a low level fundamental command that says you know tell me about yourself, and if the drive is unable to do that, it's it's as you suspect, it's probably the 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 circuit board on the drive, not the actual magnetic media. Yeah, because I don't hear any noise coming out of the drive. It's spinning up fine. You know, it's it sounds like it's acting normally. Um, you know, I'm used to bad can sounds, you, so like access sounds, which, uh, 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 none of that. Can you can you hear it like loading the heads? Like, is yeah. there like some fluttery sound yeah. in the beginning? At the beginning, we're going, yeah, and uh, and so it spins up. I hear the heads. Well, actually, you know, that's a good question because it might just spin up and the heads. I think never it's just loading. spinning up. The heads never start moving. I think. I'll yeah, have to I, it sounds to me like the little motherboard or the daughter board. You know, some of the some child sibling board uh, on, on the bottom of the drive is just, you know, it's just, well, and you've only had it for what, maybe a month? Yeah, a couple of months. And so it's probably, you know, classic infant mortality yeah. where, you know, some, one of the electronic components on the board just gave up. It, you know, it passed all the QA, it got through manufacturing, it, it made it through the TriCaster folks, but there was still some fundamental weakness that finally manifested itself. And that's an example of something that, I mean, you know, no, you know, nothing can fix except, you know, somebody like a Drive Savers who would have an identical drive and would be able to like pull the board from it and then swap it onto yours. Yeah, that that's what they thing. do. They actually put a new circuit board on. That'd be the first thing. If I had a circuit board, if I had a matching drive and I had the circuit board, I'd try that immediately because um, <clears throat> that's sure what it looks like. And of course, if you if if the machine can't access the drive, Spinrite can't either. Spinrite's not magic. If the, if if there's no physical drive to see, it can't do anything. So I, I immediately booted Spinrite, and and it's you know it's didn't see a drive. So yeah, and you know, and and the, the good news is that we all know how much more reliable solid state stuff is than magnetic state stuff. So the the you know the I don't think I've ever maybe once or twice in twenty years I've seen an instance where a a hard drive's you know daughter board died. Typically, it's not that it's it's sector problems, and right. of course that's what Spinrite is made to fix. Right. So normally it can help. So uh, the good news is uh, uh, New Tech, which makes the to- the uh, the uh, TriCaster immediately send a new drive because we're just going to swap it out. And this you know, and people got mad at me. They said, Leo, you always say back up. Well, I was backing up, and I didn't. We didn't lose any data. We backed up all our videos, except for the one video we were making while we. Uh, well, it was actually in, in, yeah, exactly right. in there. You know, in the can. Right? And I might bring it to Drive Savers just to get that video back, or just for fun to see if they can see what was really wrong. But uh, what 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 I didn't do, and I should have done, is made a an exact copy of that drive so we could just swap another drive in, and that's what I will do 
uh, this time. I'll just. Oh, and you probably thought you had a little more time before it became critical. <laughs> too. I mean, this did catch you off guard. It, did. And it was still brand new. Yeah, and we had planned to. I had, I had told Colleen. Uh, by the way, let's make an image of this drive and keep it safe so that we can uh, restore if the drive dies. In this case, I don't think I want an image. Actually, your consultation on this would be also useful. I don't think I want an image because I don't want to r- restore an image. What if, if this happens again, the drive's dead? What I really want, I think, is to be able to pull that drive out and put an identical one in and, and just get going again immediately, right? Right. So you want to make a clone. A clone. A, a, a exact bit-for-bit duplicate. You know, partition table, partition sectors, and you know, and being that this is a like a proprietary drive from inside of a device, they might very well have some you know anti copy protection stuff. Exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know what's about. on it. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. So yeah, that's why I think a bit for bit copy is what I want to do. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I, I'm I'm going to try. There are various applications that'll do this. Um, my instinct is to try one of these free ones that all the drive manufacturers. I have an Hitachi. Uh, that I'm going to uh, make a duplicate on. I, I think uh, all the drive manufacturers offer these bit copies, uh, you know, like the Max tools and stuff, so that when you right. buy a new drive, you could just take the old drive and make an exact copy and then put the new drive in. Yeah, they're wanting to promote, you know, right. your migration upward to an ever bigger drive. Precisely. So. <laughs> I'll have to see if Hitachi... Does, is Hitachi an okay... Uh, I got a deal Hitachi, on it. As a matter of fact, you know, I was talking about the big monster machine that I recently built, the the quad core with the... With the, I think I've got five one terabyte drives in right. a RAID. I chose Hitachi drives. Oh, really? they, I think they are absolutely among the best. Oh, excellent. Yep, yeah. I feel very good. Uh, Patrick Norton uh, tweeted on Twitter that uh, Newegg was selling uh, 750 gig drives for $119 plus an instant $20 rebate for 100 bucks for 750 wow. gigs. So I bought, wow. I bought two and there was a choice between Seagate and Hitachi. And I, I love Seagates. I've used Seagates for years. Uh, but the Hitachi had a bigger onboard cache, and it looked like better sustained throughput. And I thought, well, I'll take a chance. So that's good to know that it wasn't a wasn't a mistake. Yeah, so, and a cache is important also for the you know you're doing heavy bandwidth media exactly, stuff. Exactly. Exactly. More- yeah, this is a great. I mean, these are amazing. How cheap these drives are! Uh, incredible. But because they're so big, I'm with you. I'm a little nervous. I'm going to make a clone. <laughs> I'm going to have a couple of clones. Yep. Just in case. Here you come the clones. Know. Hey, before we get to uh, our our meat of the uh, matter, which is uh, I'm fascinated. I can't wait to learn about how DNS works. Um, You know, I always give you the dumb explanation. It's like a phone book that you look up a number in, but I'm sure Steve will have a much more sophisticated. So get your beanies on. Before we do that, let's mention the good folks at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. They make the security device we recommend, the uh, ultimate UTM, Unified Threat Management. That's what it stands for. It's called the Astaro Security Gateway. Actually, they make a number of devices, including an Astaro Web Gateway. But I like to tell everybody about the Security Gateway. This is the creme de la creme, the top of the line, the device about the size of a router. Although you could tell it's it's I mean, it's made out of steel. You know, you know, it's a little more than a consumer grade router. And you bet it's, of course, got an incredible firewall. But you also have intrusion protection. You've got built-in VPN via SSL, which makes it very easy for your, you know, your your users to get in via securely via VPN. Uh, also, got uh, version seven now has a whole bunch of neat stuff like digital uh, signature of emails, automatic encryption and decryption, automatic transparent to your users, and it's by the way based on SMIME and OpenPGP, so you can take your choice. This is one thing I love about Astaro is they're open source focused. They do have the best of breed. In both open source and commercial software in here, but 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 it, but they like the the open idea, and in fact, 
You can get it for free if you're a non-commercial user. You can download it from the Astaro site or go to VMware's site. They have Astaro uh, virtual machines. They have the appliance, the, the VMware uh, appliances that you can install. A good way to try Astaro. I got a better way. Uh, try the actual hardware free. Call 877-427-8276 and get a demo in your business. Go 877, the number 4, Astaro. And by the way, if you're a Cisco PIX user, you've been end of, ended of life and you're ready to move on and you want to think about Astaro, they've got a special discount for PIX users. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. It's the best. The Astaro Security Gateway. On the best security podcast, it only makes sense. <laughs> Thank them so much for their support. All right, I'm I'm prepared now. I'm got you know. I think a lot of times when you talk, I like to jot down notes. So I've got my notepad in front of me. Okay, and we're going to talk about DNS. Okay, so back before DNS, the way the internet. Whoa, we're having an earthquake. Oh, a big oh, one. Oh, he's shaking. Oh, you're really shaking. Goodness. Hold on, Steve. <laughs> Hold on. I'm watching the books behind you. They look like they're okay. But you're getting quite a tembler there. Wow. That was a big shaker. That was... Holy cow. <laughs> um, uh, wow. Er, Steve's in Irvine, California. Ah, uh, yes. On the San Andreas fault line. Are you? No, no, no. It's But it's... Wow, it's still going on. Wow. Somewhere there was a big earthquake, probably not that far from here. It, wow. But this was more rolly than than jerky and the closer you get the more you know more abrupt and sharp it that's feels. right but so you know no. this is maybe a little bit distant wow that was <laughs> you know i've only had one other live earthquake we had it on the... sorry folks <laughs> no don't apologize that's uh that's amazing when we were doing the screensavers and uh i'm talking along and i'm oblivious and kate says do you feel that and i said what we just had an earthquake and i had no idea but this one, I could tell. We could hear it. We could hear it rattling. Yeah, well, all st- sorts of stuff fell over all over the place, too. I've you know, I got to do a little cleaning up now. Do you want to pause? Oh, no, no. I'm fine. Yeah, no, we're, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in California. We're used to earthquakes. Holy cow. <laughs> That's a first. That is a first. By the way, up here in Northern California, I'm about 500 miles away from Steve. We didn't feel a thing. So it is something probably uh, centered down there in Southern California. Probably out in the desert is normally where they are. So I imagine you'll have some some people in the in the blog checking the earthquake log, and we'll know before our podcast is done how big it was and where it was. So Pasadena had some dogs are going crazy in uh, Hesperia. So uh, yeah, we're uh, Apple Valley. Uh, five seconds after Seed said something, felt it in San Diego. Six seconds later, so it's probably pretty close to uh, where you are actually. Yeah, it was. It's the biggest earthquake we've had in maybe five years. Big shake in Fontana. Yeah, I could see it. Things have been quiet, actually. So I'm glad to have a little stress relief because you don't want to let them build up too much. uh, You're right. Much better to have something like you just had. Lots of little ones. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Back to DNS. So um, once upon a time, there was actually a single hosts.txt file which maintained the machine names of everything on the internet. It was one file. It was maintained by um, the, the, the original um, internet authority 
um, NIC, and they would maintain it, and they had it on an FTP server. And every, <laughs> no, every, wait a minute, You're I'm not, me. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> so, so it was automatic. It wasn't automatic. You would actually FTP the tables. Yes, You'd whenever from periodically. Other people on the internet would FTP the master single master hosts.txt file to their machines, and that was the only way their machines had of converting names to IP addresses. Wow. And of course, needless to say, that became rather unwieldy after a while as as the as changes began happening more often as this host the single master single master hosts file for the internet you know became <laughs> extremely large so people were running locally the software that would do the lookup and they would download the tables kind of at their at will well there wasn't even software that would do the lookup it's like our hosts file that you and I talk about all the time it's on their computer and so their email, their web browser, if well, even before that, their Gopher client, you know, their IRC or their their um, you know um, um, Usenet newsreader, th- those would look in the host file. Actually, the host file is supported by the so-called sockets layer in Unix. So there were low-level commands that would that that were sort of an API in the networking stack where you could say look up the address, the IP address of this machine. And all it would do is look in your host's file. There was nothing, there was nothing like DNS. So, but that's time. interesting because that's really where the host's file came from. That's, that's, it's, it's, that's its origin. Exactly. Hey, I just want to, just let me break in. CNN is now showing pictures of a smoggy Los Angeles and saying there's an earthquake. The U.S. Geological Survey is reporting a 5.8, which, wow. is, which is a fairly serious earthquake. Yeah. Uh, they're saying it's roughly the Chino Hills, but uh, you're Ooh. you're you're pretty close to it. Uh, yeah, and uh, it is the Greater Los Angeles. Now, given the size of that and the fact that it is an urban area, I imagine we will s- start hearing some damage reports soon. But uh, just to give yep. you an update on that, yeah, cool, neat. Okay, <laughs> not, not so neat if you're in a building that fell over. Uh, yeah, not if you're near Chino Hills. You know what's impressive sure. is is uh, the the internet's rock solid. Uh, Skype was rock solid. No, you know, you were shaken, but everything else was fine. Yeah. Video looked good. A few books fell off the shelf, but that's it. <laughs> okay. So, so what happened was as this hosts file, the, the internet master hosts file became unwieldy. The, the engineers decided, okay, we need, we need something better. We need something scalable. We need something um, distributed, and they had a whole bunch of criteria. That they, they, the idea was, they wanted a a high what they what they call a hierarchical namespace. And what that means is that you would not you, machines would not be known just by a name because of well the problem of name collisions. Right. You, you know, it, it's like it's like for example, um, you know. You can't get an eBay account under your name anymore because somebody else already has it. And so, you know, it's your name, 3267295 or some nonsense. And so, you know, which is annoying. On the other hand, you can have your name if it's in a subdomain. And so that so what they did, they, they created this notion of a hierarchical namespace. And that's what this 
this com and then, you know, eBay and then www. There's three levels of hierarchy, www.ebay.com. And, and the, the hierarchy is, is, is um, shown by the periods in a, a domain name. So their idea was that there would be a set of servers which would, which would know the IP addresses of the sort of the next layer down. But, though, but those top-level servers, the so-called root servers, they wouldn't know anything about, for example, eBay. They would just know about .com. And so, so the idea was that this would create a tree, essentially, where there, there's a root to the tree, the so-called root servers, that, 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 are, that are aware of the, the first level in the hierarchy, and, and then the second level in the hierarchy is known to that first level, and the third level is known to the second, and so forth. Okay. So that's where this that that's where this whole something dot something dot something dot something comes from. So, so what happens when when I want to look up some domain that I've never been been to before is um, in my own machine in you know Windows or Mac or Linux we all have a local cache. That is, our machines will store the IP addresses of domains we've looked at since we've um, been powered on or until they've expired. That's All independent of, of the host file. That's in, the, that's in memory. Actually, that's, it, it's in memory, but it's after a check for the host's file. Oh, interesting. The host file is still in place. It's that's the still first in- thing that gets checked. Yes, and and what's cool about that, and we've we've talked about this in a couple different contexts in the past, is by putting things in the hosts file, you can preempt your computer from making a true query out onto the internet's DNS system to look for something. Which, for example, is how you could, if if you didn't want your computer ever going to doubleclick.net or you didn't want it ever going to certain bad sites, you know there are you you uh, you can download hosts file which essentially prevent your machine from going to a whole range of IP, of of domains which you've decided or the people who maintain this hosts file have decided are just bad you don't want right. your computer going there you stick that list in the hosts file and it preempts your machine from from making a query so the other thing that is important to understand is that all of the information in the the DNS system has an expiration time. That is, it says, you know, I'm some information and I'm good for six hours. And what that means is that that as the information is is obtained by DNS servers, they cache it, they they store it, and they keep track of how old it is. So that when a query comes for that information, if it has expired, the, the DNS server will be prompted to go update itself and get a fresh copy. And, and, and this is a, a wonderfully clever solution for the problem of a distributed database like this because there's, there's, it, where we've got it 
we got the, the information spread out all over DNS um, name servers all over the Internet. It makes no sense if every single time someone makes a query, we have to start up at the root and work our way back down to, to find the information. First of all, the root servers would be just be overwhelmed and and um, um, and we're getting then no benefit from this distributed hierarchy. Right. So so I'm at my computer and I, I put an address into my web browser. And first, my computer looks to see if it's in the hosts file. If not, it looks to see if it's in my local cache. That is, do, does my computer already have the address? Because, for example, I put the same address in five seconds ago or, um, or five minutes ago, and it hasn't yet expired. So if my computer does have a copy, nothing happens except it just looks up with its, within, within its own cache the IP address. If it's not in my computer, then my computer makes a query out to the the DNS server that it's been configured to ask. Now that's for for nor- for most customers that's sort of an automatic operation. For example, uh, in in Windows, if you say obtain IP address automatically, you your machine gets an IP address and it also receives the name of two name servers. That is two DNS servers that it that, that have been approved by your ISP and are typically provided by your ISP, either either actually by them or they've got a deal with somebody else that, that allows their customers to use some other DNS server. One way or another, your machine has the IP addresses of two DNS servers. And two is an important number also. It's just it's always been the case that for the sake of redundancy, we don't want to rely on a single DNS server. So, so all domains have a minimum of two DNS servers, sort of just by, by administrative fiat. The original gods of DNS said, you know, there shall be two, um, at least. The idea being that if there were one and it were down, basically you're, you're in trouble. You're not going to be able to figure out the name of something on the Internet. So for redundancy, we've got – and just by convention, there's, there's always at least two. So, so your machine sends a packet, a, a, a DNS request packet to the, the, D, the remote DNS server at, located typically um, at your ISP. Now, what's interesting is this uses the UDP protocol rather than the TCP protocol. We've talked about TCP and UDP in the past a number of times but but we'll 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 discuss it here briefly because this is part of the problem with DNS which is also part of the economy of DNS the the original DNS designer said okay a query is a tiny thing it's just basically a a you know do you know what's the ip of www.grc.com you know, I mean, a very short request. So it will fit in a single packet. So, I mean, with lots of room to spare. So because a packet can be like 1,500 bytes, and this probably takes, you know, 100 bytes. So, so they decided it makes no sense to establish a TCP connection 
when that requires sending a SYN packet to the server, it responds with a SYN ACK. We respond with an ACK. So that's the so-called TCP three-way handshake. Then we send our query, and then it sends back the answer. Then we say, okay, we're done. So we send a fin packet, and then and it sends a fin ACK back to us to shut down both directions of the conversation. So that's a huge amount of packet traffic just to send 100 bytes. And this is exactly what UDP was designed for. It is a connectionless protocol. It is the most popular connectionless protocol. And so essentially a single packet gets sent from my machine to the, the uh, one of the IPs that's configured for DNS on my machine. And it says, basically that, that packet is a query saying, what is the address of, you know, grc.com. Mm-hmm. So, so if, if the server already knows it'll instantly send me its response. The reason it might already know is, first of all, I might have asked it in, in for example, on a different computer here in my network. So, so my, this computer didn't have that in its cache, in its local cache, but another computer might. So I go to a different computer here, ask the same question. Well, the point is that this, the, the, my ISP's DNS server is, is serving DNS for a huge number of ISP's clients. So super popular domains, you know, like Microsoft.com, like, um, uh, you know, Google.com, Google.com, Amazon.com. Yeah, exactly. Yahoo. All of those are almost certainly already in its cache. So before it responds to me, it'll make sure, first of all, it's got it in its cache and that entry has not expired. And if it has not expired, it instantly sends back a UDP reply to me, one little packet coming back that says, you know, this is the IP that, that I have in my cache for, for you know, grc.com. Okay. And my machine is then says, okay, fine. And then it establishes a connection using the IP address having had it looked up for it by my ISP's DNS. I'm, now, I'm really surprised. I didn't realize that the host file was consulted first. I see the value of doing that. But, boy, usually when you think of a cache, the point of a cache is to speed uh, queries. So you don't have to make that hard drive access. Right. Well, um, the queries are yeah. fast enough, obviously. Uh, it might be that the cache is between... From a, from an architectural standpoint, it's sort of moot, but it could be that the, that the that the cache is is that, that that the cache holds the result of either the hosts. Oh, it might do that. I see. The host query yeah. or a, a remote fetch. There is. A, I know on on Unix's Unices there is a configuration you can set to say whether you look at the hosts, but the default is the hosts. Yeah, well, see, the reason I'm assuming it checks the host's file first is changing the host's file generates an immediate change right. in DNS. Right. Whereas if, if it were hiding behind the cache, then, oh, and I, actually, Leo, it can't be because the host file doesn't have any notion of expiration, and the cache is all about expiration. Right. So 
So a change to the host file takes effect immediately, whereas – and there's no notion in the host file of, okay, these things have a certain amount of expiration. I wonder why so, even I, have the cache then if you were going to always check – I guess because most results are not in the host file. Not well, anymore. Exactly. Fact, not anymore. Well, they used to be. Most, yes, and most users – have a null hosts file. They've right, got, you know, right. an example host file, but nothing actually in it. Right. So, and, and, and again, the, the danger of that is it's obsolescence. If, for example, you put, and you could, you could put www.microsoft.com and Microsoft.com's IP in your hosts file. That would prevent you from ever having a lookup delay when you're putting www.microsoft.com into your browser, it would instantly be provided by your host file much more quickly than you know any sort of network traffic out to your ISP, even if the ISP had that IP in its cache. The problem is, first of all, Microsoft has a bunch of IPs that, that are delivered in round robin fashion, which is one of the features of DNS is you're able to tell you're able to give DNS name servers, a list of, IP, of, of, of IPs for a given um, domain, and the DNS server itself will automatically rotate those to sort of distribute the load out among a number of, I, of, of IP addresses. Right. The host file has no such, such, such facility. But more importantly, if Microsoft ever changed their IP address, there's no way for them to notify your host's file right. that it's now that it's now obsolete. So anyway, so you know DNS works and and basically it's been you know well thought through. So imagine now that we make a request to our ISP's DNS server that is either not in its cache or its cache has expired. That is, the, 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 the entry it has, when it looks, it realizes, oops, this thing has gotten stale. That prompts it to, to essentially go upstream. That is, the, 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 the ISP will have a cache for, um, will have a, um, may, not, may not have grc.com in its cache, but it will certainly have the .com servers themselves, because there's there's a, a, a huge number of of top level domain servers, the um, the the .com servers. So one of those will probably be in its cache because that's going to be asked for all the time. Anytime any any domain expires in the ISP's cache, it's it's got to go to the .com servers. In the case of a .com or .edu dot gov dot dot you know mill dot whatever so so the com servers are the ones that are that are the term is authoritative they're the authoritative they have the authoritative records for example for all of the dot com domains grc yahoo microsoft you know uh well let's see twit you're in the tv domain yeah which but, is tuvalu uh, runs that but one. But Leoville.com, so right. there's Leoville. Um, so, so the com servers have the authoritative records for, for, for all of the .com domains. So the ISP's server is able to ask one of the .com servers, hey, um, what is the, um, uh, what, are, what are the name servers for grc.com because what they 
what their what the what the what the dot com servers have is the name servers for GRC. So so the com servers tell the ISP's name server here's the two name servers and they might be for example ns1.grc.com and ns2.grc.com if I'm hosting my own name servers and because there's sort of a chicken and egg problem here we're trying to get the grc.com um ip except that the name servers are are in grc.com so they so the there's um something called glue uh those are additional records that can be provided so the .com server will say oh and the ips of ns1.grc.com and ns2.grc.com you know those two name servers are as follows and so they'll provide the ip addresses of those so now the isp has the ip addresses of grc.com's name servers it's able then to ask for example for the ip of www.grc.com which it then stores in its cache for the length of time that 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 the that that record has before it expires and if they if they went to grc.com um my server for example says i don't i don't know i probably like 8 hours or something or maybe or maybe 24 um one of the cool things that it's possible to do if if i knew for example that tomorrow i was going to be changing my ip addresses i could deliberately bring down the 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 so-called TTL the time to live on grc.com's DNS records that would have two effects it would it, it would mean that as gr as grc.com's records expired at various places in the internet and the 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 records were refreshed they would be getting new records with shorter TTLs well that would increase the load on my on my DNS server because basically it's making all of the all of the various servers come back to me much more much, much more quickly but the trade off is if I, when I make a change to that information it will be it will it will get out into the internet much more quickly and you know we've all we I'm sure uh, there've been many times we we've talked about DNS propagating this idea of oh, it'll take a while for DNS to propagate well that's really what that means is it's 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 something that the DNS server itself the authoritative server um uh for a domain is able to control because it it's able to specify how long it wants its records to live out on the internet and and so for example after making an IP change I would probably go back to a 24 hour TTL which which then when 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 people came back relatively quickly because I had had a short TTL they would then be getting this 24 hour TTL and they go okay fine we can you know we can confidently deliver these records to anyone who asks for one full day after which we'll come back just to make sure nothing has changed of course you want to balance it's a balance between um, updates and uh, bandwidth you don't want to overdo it either yes exactly so yeah and, and in fact there was a there was actually I remember a mistake Microsoft made where they inadvertently 
had a very low TTL oh boy. On, on some of their records, and their DNS servers were being slammed by the entire internet. They were a very popular, I'm pretty sure it was Microsoft, a very popular domain. And and so... Now you know, explain to me why they'd be slammed. Wouldn't that get uploaded to the main servers? Well, yes. Um, they were being slammed. I think it was. I think the the TTL was down in the order of a few seconds, oh, though. Jeez. So mean, and so they're getting hit by the DNS uh, servers yes, asking for updates. Exactly. They're getting hit by all of the ISPs saying, "Oh, look, you're telling us that your records are only good for five seconds, so we got to ask you again." Wow. You know, we don't want to ask you again. We know you don't want to ask uh, us to ask you again, but you're saying. These records are this short-lived. So the and ISPs will go to directly to Microsoft instead of to the the, the big 13 domain name servers. They'll actually you, go to the person providing that information. Well, yes, and that's critical to our discussion. So so what they'll do is they they need what they need to get from the com servers, for example, in the case of Microsoft.com, they need to get the the name and the IP address of Microsoft's name servers because okay. because the it's Microsoft name servers that have all the information about Microsoft that is you know www.microsoft you know any other subdomain secure.microsoft.com any any subdomains ah. and and even and even you know microsoft.com itself even that that's that IP is for for Microsoft is different than the name servers which exist on their own separate IPs. Okay. So the only thing that the com servers have are the name server name and IP. And when you think about it, Leo, I know you've registered domains before. Yeah. When you register a domain, what you give it is name servers. You give it, you, you right. say, okay, it's NS1. Here's where my name servers live. Here's yes. where my name servers are. And so, and so then so who was ever maintaining the name servers, they have established the DNS records in those name servers, which, which ISPs DNS servers then query. So the, so the only thing that is in the, in like in the, the top level domain, the, the um, .com, .edu and so forth are the IPs of the name servers. And then the DNS, the DNS servers go to those name servers in order to get the specific details. Interesting. Okay. So, okay, now back in the back in the early days, there was really no concern for security. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, the internet was small enough that you had the whole internet in one host's file. And and you know, we've talked about how back then you you had people in white lab coats who, you know, who made sure they they wiped their feet before they went into the computer room right. and there was you know .gov .edu you know .mil i mean there were some high level domains there were you know just basically you know a number in, in the hundreds or thousands of machines in total total ip addresses on the internet there there just weren't that many so they made dns so that it worked but there was no, I mean, no concept of security. When I, when I was thinking about, um, about this um, yet yesterday, how I was going to drive home the fact that there was no concept of security, I, I, I thought of a perfect example. And that is, 
SSL that we've talked about many times, the secure sockets layer yeah. and HTTPS, that was all added on afterwards. There was no security in TTL at all. That was the Netscape guys that came up with the first SSL specification, adding that way after the fact to TCP. So it wasn't even possible to have an encrypted TCP connection. You couldn't, you couldn't send email that was not in the clear unless you encrypted it yourself and then had somebody decrypted the other end. So, I mean, there was just, there was just no notion of this. They were amazed it worked at all <laughs> rather than, you know, rather, rather than worrying about how bad guys could attack it and make it not work. Well, that it's, just just, it's very telling, though. I mean, the whole Internet was designed uh, pre-security concerns. Yes. And uh, this is kind of such a fundamental part of the Internet. And they just weren't thinking. They were thinking about a lot of other things, obviously. They did right. a good job designing it, but it's not secure. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, the, the documents that describe what I'm talking about today, it's RFC 1034 and RFC 1035, were written in November of 1987, hmm. 21 years ago. Why, so, why do you think they, they just, was that just to the general thing? Was that nobody was thinking about security? I mean, they just, nobody did think about it, I guess. Well, there weren't any bad guys. Yeah. I mean, they, the bad guys all came along later. Why would anyone and mess with their nice little system here? Yeah. And there wasn't any commercial use of the Internet. It was all government and edu and research and just sort of, oh, look what we can do. Right. We're able to send packets off and they get to where we aim them. Right. Which was am amazing to these guys. I mean, and, I mean, and should be. It was great technology. But they're just, I mean, it was fundamentally about getting it to work. Right. And. Whereas now we think, oh, well, of course it works. We wish just that, you know, that it were bulletproof. It's like, okay, back then, just making this whole DNS thing work was amazing. So, so when a DNS query is, is sent out, any kind of a query, um, we've talked about how IP ports and IP addresses work. You have a port at each end, which is just a number from from 1 to 65535 and an IP address which is a um a 32 bit number in for a, a DNS server at an I, at an ISP is pretty busy it's sitting there and it's it's receiving queries from all of the ISP's customers and and it's checking its cache to see if it if it knows the answer already and if it has not expired if it knows it and and if so it sends the answer back if it needs to make a query to unto another server above it to a, like, like a dot com server in order to find out where microsoft.com's name servers are it what it does is it uses a 16 bit value which is called the, the transaction ID, or also sometimes known as the, the query ID or QID. And the idea is that it, 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 that was in the original implementation was just an incrementing counter, that it would, it would simply count up and it would be a, a larger value each time an outbound query was made. And so the idea was that when the when the answers came back, the DNS server would would use this query ID as like a serial number to match up the response with the request, and 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 that was you know essentially used as its own housekeeping 
mechanism. Now, a long time ago, and this is like way predating our, our current dilemma, people, as people began to recognize that there were bad guys on the internet, some of this infinitely trusting nature of especially DNS came, people realized, okay, DNS is way too trusting. The reason is it was easy to spoof DNS. If, if, if you wanted to know at any point where DNS's counter was, you could, you could simply cause the ISP to send your own name server, your own server, a query. You would see where this transaction ID counter was and, and then be able essentially to spoof your own reply. You, would, you, you could cause the DNS server to have an outstanding query and then you send it the answer before the, the actual response gets back. Basically, you, you beat it to the punch. And, and since this was a, just a simple incrementing counter and you could get it to, to ask you a question, you could, you could determine where the counter was and essentially send a whole bunch of replies really fast after you know that you had caused the, the ISP server to emit a query and essentially spoof the result. Now, one of the reasons this was so easily done unfortunately, is the use of UDP. Because unlike TCP, where this three-way handshake confirms the IP address at each end, remember, we, we've talked about often how, how you cannot spoof a TCP address that is a TCP IP because in order to set up the connection, you must have packets make, make a round trip in each direction. That's That's part of what the whole TCP handshake is doing. Whereas with, with UDP, it's just a single packet. Off it goes to the server, and then back it comes. But there's nothing to authenticate that packet. So if your system has <clears throat> full raw sockets... <laughs> well, they're all sockets. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, if your system has, has access to raw sockets you're able to build your own UDP packet and put any source IP in it that you want. Not the source IP of your machine, but the source IP of the, the server you are spoofing. Mm. And you can, you can send that packet out, and you can send as many of them as you want to, even like with a range of these, of these um, query IDs or transaction IDs, hoping, you know, like they're, the, the, because this DNS server is busy. It, it's sending a bunch of queries out. So even if you're able to read the current state of the counter, uh, it might be making other queries before you're able to, to get it to make the query you want. So the counter might have moved forward a little bit. But still, that creates a, a, a window that you can pretty much guess where its counter is going to be. So you flood it with fake replies. And essentially, you're able to, you're able to poison its cache. When we talk about a cache, a DNS cache poisoning attack, that's what this is. Mm. So one of the things that they realized was, okay, DNS has been too trusting. We're not going to use linear counters anymore on our transaction IDs. 
we're going to use a pseudo random number generator so that the transaction ID jumps all over the place. So, so that substantially strengthened DNS that made it, that made it much stronger. Um, it meant that, that you had to guess, well, basically it meant that you had no information about what the, the transaction ID was going to be, assuming that it was using a good random number generator. It just meant that, that um, it was issuing queries from you know, using any 16-bit transaction ID following a path that you could not guess. So, so that made it much stronger. On the other hand, networks got faster, computers got faster, and remember, a 16-bit transaction ID is only 64K things. We, for example, we would never want to trust our security to something that was 16 bits. It's just too guessable. Right. And, and we've seen that um, from, the, from the way a birthday attack works, that the chance of two things colliding, remember, remember the birthday attack is, is in a room of people who, who all have birthdays uh, by definition yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there is it, you may not be able to guess one particular person's birthday or if you had a given date it might not be that anyone in the room had that but the chances of two people in the room having the same birthday is much higher because of because of all the 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 cross the because of all the number of of possible matches, you know, it's it's the number of people squared. It's n or n times n minus one. So, um, so so the point is that even a random number generator that's only sixteen bits long isn't random enough. Okay, now two things are required in order for a reply to be matched. Not only must the the transaction ID match, but the the packet must return from to, to the same port it was emitted from. The 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 TCP stack itself, the the IP protocol, if you send a UDP reply or send a, a UDP query, a UDP packet out, it you're then listening for a reply to the same port. Well, originally DNS servers ran on port 53 that is they always are listening for queries on port 53 that's a universal dns port in the same way that that the web is port 80 and smtp is 25 and pop is 110 dns runs on port 53 that is all dns servers listen they 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 listen to um um queries coming in on port 53 that's the the dns service port so, so for example, when my computer is asking my I, my ISP to do a lookup for it, it sends that UDP query to port fifty three. But the the source port, that is the outbound port, as opposed to the destination port, that can be anything. Well, originally DNS servers often they would either they would just emit their own traffic from port fifty three, or they would just when they got fired up at boot time, they would allocate a port, and all queries would go out from the same port. So, so that made so that so 
that meant that replies had to come back to the same port, but that meant that the only the only thing that the, the that the spoofer had to guess was the was the transaction ID. Um, Dan Bernstein, who is a well known, well respected security researcher, he said a long time ago that you know. Having a fixed query port, that is a fixed port from which queries are emitted to other servers on the Internet, is insecure. He wrote a DNS server that that did what's called query port randomization, meaning that deliberately, every time the server wanted to make a query, it would it would open a new port and emit the query from that port so that the response had to come back to the matching port. Well, as we know, ports are 16 bits, 1 to 65535. So, so essentially, doing query port randomization and transaction ID randomization gives you 32 bits of, of, of entropy and makes spoofing DNS vastly more difficult. Ah, very it's, I mean, it is, it is 64,000, you know, 65,536 times more difficult and, and virtually impractical at that point. The problem is that most DNS servers, you know, Dan Bernstein's DNS servers have, uh, I think it's DJB DNS, have, have always done this, have always done query port randomization. The open DNS servers have done it. You know, sort of high security DNS servers have, have done that. However, a couple things cause that some problems. Depending upon the configuration, for example, of, of corporate or ISP firewalls, it may not be convenient for them to have queries going out on all ports, because that means you've got to have replies able to come in on all ports. So, so for example, sometimes a firewall policy will restrict DNS to a, to a given locked down port. One of the other things that happens is sometimes NAT routers can de-randomize DNS. That is, you might have a good DNS server with with really good query um, port uh, or query source port randomization. Yet, when it goes to the NAT router to go to traverse outside, the NAT router says, ah, um, we're going to we're going to re you know NAT, NAT routers often remap ports. It might make them linear." It might just say we're going to use the next port up from the one we used last time and linearize it. Well, as soon as you've got ports being linear, um, again, they're easy to guess. You can guess what the next port or the next range of ports is likely to be um, and, and send your spoofed UDP packets there. So, so, so essentially, one of the, one of the things that, that – was done by some DNS servers was this the, this query source port randomization, which which essentially um, made spoofing DNS 64k times more difficult and and virtually impractical. So uh, a good we, thing, a very yes. good thing indeed. Um, yes. and it's interesting because uh, you know you mentioned a couple of you. Uh, no, Randall Schwartz said that's one of the things that makes OpenBSD so secure. You mentioned OpenDNS. Do they use their own 
servers. Don't know whose servers they're using, but yeah. I know that from from the beginning they, they were, were secure. They, yeah. Yes, they were secure because of of this. But almost so, almost nobody. I mean, Cisco, Microsoft, even Bind, the traditional free software foundation uh, DNS server that's used by almost everybody, all had this vulnerability. None yes. of them were using randomized. Yes, um, some of them had the opportunity. Some of them, I mean, it, it was it was an option that was often not used. And it's interesting because you know many times in the last few weeks, I've heard people lamenting that Dan Bernstein was right. Yeah, we absolutely we absolutely had to have uh, query source port uh, randomization in in order to thwart this kind of attack. Very interesting. Let's talk about the attacks. In, yep. in fact, this attack that uh, Dan Kaminsky found. Because he's now revealed how it works. Yep. And now that you understand... Well, actually, he, he has not revealed how oh, it works. Oh, others have... <laughs> well, and that's the thing. He may, he may say, no, you were close. <laughs> yep, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell our listeners what it is that everyone believes and what it is that was found. Yeah, it's very interesting. And we are starting to see these attacks, and that's what's really discouraging, because even though patches exist now for all the servers, nobody, many, many ISPs aren't applying them. I'll talk more about that in a second, but I, w- I do want to remember this. Sh- remind you, this show brought to you by the good folks at Visa. As long as you're talking security, when you're online, when you're shopping online, whether you're trying to decide on that uh, Hitachi hard drive with a 32 megabyte cache or the Seagate with a 16 megabyte cache, you don't want to be thinking about, but is this transaction safe? That's why you use your Visa card. Visa makes sure it's safe, secure, online, all the purchases you make. With Visa are safe and secure. They have many ways to prevent, detect, and resolve online fraud, including software that does real-time fraud uh, monitoring and and is very sophisticated business intelligence software. I've actually talked to the folks who designed this stuff. It's fascinating. I mean, think about it. They're doing hundreds of millions, if not billions, of transactions a day, and yet it's like and it's like looking for a needle in the haystack. But they're very good at spotting those anomalous transactions. And then the beauty of it is you're never liable for author unauthorized purchases. Zero liability. And that really is what protects you online. Safe, secure Visa. The next time you shop, make sure you use your Visa card. You won't have to worry about who else is using it without your permission. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the attack. Yes. Um, okay. So what we believe is that is that Dan... Okay. Basically... Everything I've said so far, everybody has always known. I mean, that's what DNS spoofing is. That's DNS cache poisoning attacks. And it, but, uh, but it was more theoretical because it was complicated and difficult to do, right? Well, the, the, the transaction ID, the, the transaction ID was normally randomized, but the, the source port for most DNS servers was not. Right. So, but it was, it was believed that even if i mean that the worst you could do would be to would be to to affect one record in a dns server that is you it, it would only be when www.google.com it would only be when that record expired that that the server that had cached it would be induced to go to, to go and um, and update its knowledge of the www machine IP at google.com so there's a a t- 
tiny window of opportunity. There was nothing you could do to like force a, a an ISP's DNS server to accept a new www.google.com IP. There would be when when it would finally expire, then you had an opportunity. But you know, I mean, it would immediately be be asking, and you had um, transaction. Uh, uh, transaction number randomization. So, so you know, there was just it wasn't practical. It was sort of a theoretical attack. It wasn't practical. Mm. What Dan, what we believe, Dan realized what it now exists in exploit code being circulated around the internet. Um, H. D. Moore, who who maintains the the you know well regarded in hacker circles the Metasploit framework instantly implemented this late last week um, on um, uh, in, in his framework, and he called it the Bailey Wicked domain <laughs> attack. I like that. Um, the uh, Bailey Wick is, is the term used to refer to the, the, the sort of the neighborhood, the, 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 the domain that you're in where once upon a time, it was possible um, in early DNS servers to to fool them by sending information back that they did not ask for. That is, you you could actually um, the way a DNS the way a DNS query and reply are structured. You you have a, a a query and then an answer to the query and then additional information and authority information for sections. And you're able to put whatever you want to in the additional information. Normally, it's, as I was saying, it's this glue to sort of help the server. For example, if, if, the, if the server you're querying has some additional information for you, like the IP addresses of the name servers or, or other information that you might otherwise have to go get again, it, it'll give it to you to sort of just for the sake of efficiency to improve the way DNS operates. And there were some servers where you were able to give it, imp- and, and this is early DNS servers, you were able to give it um, information about an entirely different domain so that in a, in a response to a query from about yahoo.com, you could actually put in information about Google. Mm. And these very, and this has not been seen for a long time, so don't worry about this. This got fixed, you know, quickly. But I mean, this is how trusting the original DNS was. It just believed anything <laughs> anybody sent it. Whatever. And so, so, so those were called um, out of bailiwick. Um, that is to say, the 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 additional information had nothing whatsoever to do about the query. They weren't in the same bailiwick as the query. So now DNS servers. You know, were made smarter, and they were they were they were they were taught not to not 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 to to, well, to completely disregard any additional information that is out of bailiwick that is not relevant to the query that they're making. So, what we believe Dan realized is that there was a way to force now, as opposed to waiting for the cash to expire and then having some futile race in order to get a, a, a reply in before the, uh, the real reply was, a, was able to get in, he, we believe he realized there is a way to force a, a, a fundamental change in the, the DNS cache. 
And wow. this is how this is how it works. You you first let's use uh, I'll use example.com. So you um, you look up the two name servers for example.com and that'll be, you know, ns1.example.com or nns2.example.com or, or, or whatever they are. You look up the two name servers for example.com. Those are the servers that an ISP's DNS server will query when it needs information about example.com. So, so you're able to look them up just the, the same way the ISP is. So you know the IP addresses that the, that the ISP's DNS server will, will query. And, you, and so you're going to attack this given ISP's DNS server, and this will be a lame ISP that has not updated their DNS servers to add um, random uh, query port queries a surprisingly large number even now yes even even now we're seeing a, a huge number that have just not bothered even though it's been you know there's been a lot of concern raised about this so what you do is you send a query for a fake machine a a a a a a dot example dot com and okay that doesn't exist so you know it's not in the cache. That is, you're forcing a cache miss, oh. which which forces the ISP's the ISP's DNS server to ask the example.com server for the IP of aaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
for example.com. And because they are name servers for example.com, they are in Bailiwick and they will replace the name server records at the ISP. Wow. And it works. It oh, takes man. It takes about 30 seconds, maybe as much as, as a couple of minutes. It, it is being exploited right now, and it works. What this means is you're not just changing one record. You are, you are essentially redirecting the, all the name services for an entire domain. Google.com, Microsoft.com, eBay.com, Yahoo. I mean, what, whatever the attacker wants. They're able to, to flood an ISP server with spoof replies, even though the transaction ID is jumping all over the place. The, the, the nature of the birthday attack means that, that you're going to get a collision. When you get a collision, you, it's going to look like a valid reply from the real server. And that real server, the, the, the so-called glue, this additional information will be accepted because it's in Bailiwick. In, in the process, what you've done is you have told the ISP server that these are the name servers for, for an entire domain, which is where it will go from now on. And you can give that record a, a super long TTL, a super long time to live. Time to live is 32 bits. That's a long time. Essentially, it will never expire. That record will never expire, and it will sit there being wrong. At that point, anybody who is a customer of that ISP who is using that ISP's DNS and and puts www.google.com, for example, into their browser, will be their machine will receive a fake IP for Google.com. You, it'll, it'll come up, and it'll look just like Google. You look in your URL. You can make sure, oh, yeah, www.googld.com. That's it. There's no phishing going on wrong because the ISP's DNS has been poisoned with this attack. And none of the anti-phishing measures that the browsers implement will work because it looks like it's the normal pl- You're going to the right place. Yes. Now, now what does work is... Certificates S- work. Certificates, yes. Yeah. SSL. There is, there is no way that some random, you know, malicious server in Russia that is spoofing Google or spoofing eBay or spoofing PayPal, and these are going to be the targets. There's no way that that they're going to be able to have a certificate for paypal.com. However, not all users are are cognizant of the of of security. That is it's PayPal. When you go to www.paypal.com, PayPal switches you to a secure connection for login. We just take it for granted. And it's only the most recent browsers that even color the bar and show you that you've got a secure connection. No, it's a little padlock down in the bottom. Right. People don't look, and they just assume PayPal is going to, you know, when they log in, it's going to be secure. So it can, ne- it can never be a secure connection because the certificate doesn't match the URL. You don't own, you can't get PayPal certificate. Well, and my point is that the, the, the spoofed site will not switch you 
to SSL. It can't. It, you will law. It, you, well, it can't. But it, see, it doesn't want to. It doesn't need to. Right. Because you because you put in www.paypal.com, which by default is HTTP. So you establish a connection not using SSL. It gives you the login page. You you think you're at PayPal right. and that it's going to be a secure login, but it's not right. because because you're actually at the wrong IP, which which every customer of this ISP will be going to as long as that cache rec- that cached DNS record is is wrong. And they couldn't really ever make it a secure uh, SSL connection, a certificate, because a certificate would have to would it have to say PayPal.com to match? Well, yes, the but see they don't have to. I mean, well, I understand they don't have to, but what this means though is there's a hole because. I could check to see if I have an SSL connection. If I don't, then I know it's not the right page. Oh, absolutely, Leo. You and our listeners are probably not going to get caught out by this. Well, but and, and so you're right. You you, you could I have to remember you to could check. put in HTTPS colon slash slash www.paypal.com. If you manually put in a secure connection, PayPal, the real PayPal will accept it. The a fake one, well, they're probably not even going to have a server running on on port four four three for HTTPS because they know you know they're not they're not able to spoof PayPal's certificate. Right. But they could do something even trickier. They could they could at www.paypal.com they could have a redirect. Remember we talked about the redirect dance a couple weeks ago that form was doing. They could have a redirect to PayLow. Dot com <laughs> some some subtle misspelling right. of the name right. and they get a certificate for that so so they're able to accept a connection on PayPal redirect your browser to https colon slash slash paylal.com. it would say paylal in my browser it wouldn't say PayPal in my browser right or it could be uh, popal or something right. you know like, right. like o versus a where you know at a glance it looks the same but you know, again, if there were some need for them to establish an SSL connection, they have. I mean, when you go to this site non-secured, they can do whatever they want to with your browser, right. which believes it is at the right location. Right. That's fascinating. So, if you are sharp-eyed, you can spot this. There is a way to always spot it. Uh, well, oh, I guess if you're going to a site that has SSL, n- not yeah, I mean a yeah. blogging site or you know you all. Spot I mean. It. Now, unfortunately, SSL connections are still the rarity. They're not used except normally only briefly during login. Even, for example, when you log into Gmail, as we talked about it, if you initiate a connection to to Google Mail that is secure, it'll keep it secure. Otherwise, it briefly moves you into secure and then back into non-secure. Very interesting. So it is, I mean, this is a, and this is serious because, first of all, um, H.D. Moore um, you know, has implemented this in the Metasploit framework. There is, there is, it, there. This, these attacks are underway. They take on the order of a couple minutes to get the collision of the transaction ID on a server that is not randomizing its queries, and unfortunately, a huge number of servers now are not. Now, um, Dan created a page that we talked about last week and the week before, I think, his Docs Para site. Right, right. Um, he's, he's updated it a few times. I've seen and others have reported inconsistent results from it. Sometimes mm-hmm. it says 
All the queries are coming from a, a, a single port. Sometimes it says they're coming from random ports. I've even seen it say that your DNS server is doing something better to thwart the attack. You don't have anything to worry about, but he's being cagey about it. Right. So there is another site that I wanted to aim to, to tell our listeners about. Um, it's got a long URL, which I am putting in our show notes. I'll, I'll just say it for the sake of saying it once, but there's a, I, I created a snip URL, a short version of it. The, the full URL is entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y dot D-N-S hyphen O-A-R-C dot net slash test. But don't write that down. You don't need to write that down. The easy-to-remember one is snipurl.com slash DNS test. S-N-I-P-U-R-L.com slash DNS test, which is just a little redirection URL that I created for our listeners. What that does is take you to a very nice test that actually charts the source port randomization and the transaction ID. It issues up to 25 queries and watches the DNS server that your browser is using, which is typically your ISP's DNS server, it watches it issue queries and is able to show you a chart and lists all the ports that were used and all the transactions IDs. It then does a, a standard deviation of those. It's amazing, term- really. I mean, if you looked at the old Docspara, it's incredible. Yeah, this is a really nice tool, and it will allow people to determine if their ISPs have have figured out that this is really important to fix. Yeah, and we should mention again that the Open DNS system, which has always been available uh, and for use for uh, as an alternative DNS, you've got to manually configure it in in your system. But they're using source port randomization, and they are you know they're not going to be spoofed. Uh, and it might, if, if you're a person who's concerned about this, you might want to take matters into your own hands until your ISP gets around to fixing this. Yeah, OpenDNS is great for so many other reasons, too. I think that's, some people have worried a little bit about the notion that they put ads up if you get a, you know, you enter the wrong URL. It doesn't bother me. They have to, they have to monetize somehow. And it's so useful in so many ways. And it's secure. And it was secure from day one. Now, there have been some questions about whether whether personal routers have a problem with this. And personal routers, for the most part, are not doing any caching. You know, the, the, the little inexpensive, you know, Netgear, Linksys-style routers, all they're doing is passing DNS queries on. However, the Linux-based routers, like the open WRT stuff, those are known to have this problem. Wow. So, so people who are using... Uh, the the ww hyphen wrt and open wrt you're going to want to you know do some googling and and find out what's going on um, because the, those routers may be caching uh, but but again it would be a it would have to be a highly targeted attack that is somebody would have to see your router issuing a dns query and have some some reason to poison you in the process they're only going to poison your one network of course, you're concerned about that, except that it makes far more, you know, far more sense for bad guys to go after major ISPs. And right. essentially what this means is you they're able to insert new name servers into any domain they want and poison for any length of time 
that domain, and it pro- the only way an ISP would probably know is if customers began complaining that when they go to you know PayPal, there something seems wrong, wow. and then the ISP goes, uh oh, and you know flushes that cash record. And and you know and and gets rid of the, of the problem, but who knows how many people would be affected in the meantime? I mean, this is this is why all of the um, DNS uh, solution providers updated their their DNS servers. They may be we don't know what the full fix is. That hasn't been revealed. We don't really know for sure what Dan is going to say um, on on August sixth. Maybe they are tightening up their their in bailiwick um management so for example they're looking to see whether um whether a, a like another reply came back from the real server they 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 could be doing rate limiting on on incoming spoofs i mean there are a number of things dns could do to harden itself even beyond source port randomization but certainly adding another 16 bits of randomness by virtue of of emitting queries from an unknown port that it's just much well it's virtually impossible right, well right. again it's you know impossible ne- ne- we now know is a relative term yeah, never say impossible yeah never say impossible <laughs> but it's 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 so unlikely that both the transaction id that's a 16 bits and the port number which is 16 bits minus 1 um, that's so unlikely that both of those would would match an incoming reply as to not be worth anyone's while trying to guess it. So right, right. certainly the best defense is to have an ISP whose DNS servers are emitting queries on random ports. But I think at this point, our listeners probably know and understand, hopefully, this entire problem. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I had read the um, the explanations that others had come up with about how this works, but... Uh, You've got to have the, the fundamentals of how DNS works before you can understand this. And uh, I didn't really quite understand this, this whole port thing. And now that you explained it, I do. And the exploit makes sense. And I think the thing to point out is that we're seeing this exploit in the wild. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, interestingly, H.D. Uh, Moore commented somewhere that this was available on Linux and they were porting it to the Mac OS X, that is the exploit, but it would not be ported over to windows mm-hmm. because windows cannot spoof udp because, because thankfully it does not have full raw sockets and this was a fight just because i know steve won't to- toot his own horn here this is a fight steve brought to microsoft when xp first came out and it did in fact have this raw sockets capability microsoft put it in saying well it's in it's in unix we ought to have it in windows they underestimated the security issue uh steve really raised as a ruckus a lot of people i have to say criticize steve for that uh saying oh it's a tempest in a teapot well he's been proven right time and time again and eventually microsoft finally got the message and did take out that full raw socket capability from xp and thank goodness otherwise these exploits would be much more widespread well what we would what we would have is we would have windows based bot fleets exactly. that were able to do this and that's that's good that would really up the ante it's also worth mentioning that dan has come under a lot of heat. People are are accusing him of, you know, promoting himself and and oh, making a bigger bad. deal of this than than it is. You know, I mean, I think there's no way not to feel that that Dan has really done the internet a a community a great service. He he realized this was a problem, presuming that this is what the problem is, 
um, again, we're, we're all having to really finally wait until his presentation at Black Hat to know. But, you know, he brought this to the to, to, to the attention of the, the, the proper DNS authorities, got them to, you know, really explain the problem, got them to understand that this wasn't just a theoretical problem. Um, everybody fixed it or, or you know, or that, that, that is to say, changed the software so that it could then be deployed. And then, as we announced two weeks ago, this thing all went public, not any knowledge of what it was, but just the fact that people had to upgrade their DNS. And maybe they're strengthening DNS even beyond good source port randomization. Uh, we really won't know until Dan tells us all, you know, the whole background of this. But it is certainly the case that, that old DNS servers are still on the net. I mean, tens of thousands of them are. And a tools now exist that within a few minutes can change the DNS records of any domain they choose to redirect everyone who uses that, who depends on and relies on that DNS server to any other IP on the Internet. And that's not good. Well, and he handled it so responsibly. I mean, I don't think you could ask for a more responsible way to handle this. No. Nope. So no reason to criticize Dan in the least. In fact, he did exactly, it seems to me, exactly the right. And he, there's no way he could have known that ISPs would be so slow to adopt these patches. And what, right. what are you going to do? You got to make, you got to do it anyway. As soon as the patches go out, people know something's up. Well, and now what will happen is we will, you know, ISPs, for whatever reason, they're being reluctant. They don't want to bring their DNS servers down. You know, the guy with the passwords quit and they don't know how to bring them down. I mean, you know, who knows what. But but we're we're now going to see some horror stories, you know, isolated horror stories of, you know, major exploits of this against unpatched DNS servers. I will say again what I said last week. It is very easy to determine if a DNS server is exploitable. So so that means that those servers that have not yet been updated are going to are they're like drawing fire to right. themselves? Right. You know, they're, is they're there saying, any way to tell? I mean, I yeah, you could run one of these programs, I guess, like Docspara or as DNS test, and you could tell. All you have to do, yes, all you have to do is is cause the server to emit some queries oh, that you you're can, able. You can see it immediately. Yeah, you're yeah. able to see. You know, um, you know, you 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 would set up a domain and you would ask it for fake machines in your domain. That would force it to ask your domain servers for those fake machine names. You look at those, you instantly know whether that DNS server is, is, is exploitable or not. Wow, very interesting stuff. Thank you, Steve Gibson. You can find uh, this podcast, plus a transcript, plus 16 kilobit versions, if you'd like to share it with your bandwidth-impaired friends at Steve's site, grc.com. That's also where you'll find Spinrite, the world's best, must-have Disk Maintenance and Recovery Utility. It gave me a great feeling to know I had SpinRed. I could test this drive when it failed. Uh, GRC.com. Also, a lot of great useful utilities like Shields Up. Uh, Steve's really been doing this for a long time and is a great boon to the Internet community, and we're really glad he's he's there. GRC.com. And Steve, we will uh, do a Q&A next week. I look forward to it, Leo. I'll talk to you then. All right. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Security Now.